Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Emily Ng, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Amsterdam School for Cultural Analysis at the University of Amsterdam. And she'll be talking about her new book, A Time of Lost Gods, Mediumship, Madness and the Ghost after Mao, which was published in 2020 by University of California Press. As we plunge ever deeper into an era for which post-Cold War, or in the case of China, post-Mao, seems like a more and more outmoded label, questions nevertheless remain about how to understand China's mid to late 20th century from the vantage point of the present. Many people inside and beyond China agree that this was a time of great upheaval and disorder for society at large. Yet as Emily Ng shows in A Time of Lost Gods, there are those who offer a different view. From a rural standpoint at the very heart of the country in Henan province, a group of people collectively termed spirit mediums look back on the Mao era as a time of relative peace, when a powerful sovereign brought cosmic order to both human and beyond human realms. Since the death of Mao, a new kind of disorder has conversely brought unpredictable capital flows, outmigration, and intergenerational strife to the world, dispatching a flood of ghosts and spirits to team into newly formed cracks between social, economic, and political relationships. Drawing on fieldwork in rural Hunan, Emily Ng delved into these fissures, drawing out a fascinating range of perspectives on China's post-Mao era. These are drawn from Ng's deep engagement with the work of spirit mediums themselves, the lives of ordinary villagers who consult them, and also patients in a local psychiatric ward whose concerns at times overlap with those of the mediums. While offering a rich portrait of all things cosmological at China's very heart, this book is in fact extremely difficult to sum up, spanning as it does a wide variety of themes critical to understanding the country's recent past and present. From religion and ritual, to class, gender, generation, money and migration, and from ghosts to communist officials, and indeed ghosts of communist officials, such a rich range of of themes makes it into this beautifully written text that it often seems to be weaving its own cosmology. And so it's lucky that the author is here to tell us more about all of this. So I'll say, Emily Ng, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for that really wonderful introduction. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully it somewhat uh, represented some of the things that are in the book. But uh, if it didn't, then please do say some things to indicate what you think is in there. Um, but uh, before we get on to that, uh, I'll begin by asking you how you got interested in, in these topics uh, in, I guess, uh, China and cosmology and uh, all of the things that you have researched. Yeah, and um, so the the book itself came out of my PhD work at UC Berkeley in medical anthropology. Um, and at that time, I had been interested in the theme of madness in general and had done some previous work in um, a psychiatric hospital in Shenzhen, so a relatively urban space that was, at the time, um, in the early 2000s, over 90% um, uh, labor migrants, essentially in the hospitals, there were many young labor migrants who had fallen ill. And so I was at the time trying to understand 
patient experiences of bipolar disorder. And I was really curious what was this other world that people were coming from that I hadn't really spent much time in, um, in the villages. And I was also somewhat moved, but also somewhat stuck on certain critical approaches to psychiatry and psychology and questions of disciplinary power and closure where Mandis doesn't speak to anything in particular after a particular uh, historical moment, or there's some kind of mark of um, coercion. And I didn't really get the sense of how one could think oneself out of that um, loop, let's say, or that, that kind of conceptual frame and what, how one could think Mandis otherwise. Um, and I knew that there were some references in the literature, obviously, to other traditions, but I myself had not encountered them. So it was very difficult to, for me to think Mandis conceptually outside of the psychiatric frames that I, I myself had learned them through. And so I think that I was curious about what would it be to think through something like possession, both experientially and conceptually. And that was something that I wanted to understand a bit better because it was, it was a little bit outside of my imaginative capacity, um, even though it's such a classic theme in anthropology. Right, right. Yeah, so you approach it from uh, this pretty unique uh, angle, starting, if you like, yeah, from uh, from something that's uh, at the other end of some kind of spectrum and and, and following it back towards its, uh, I don't know, origin point or sort of up the up the scale somewhere. Um, but, I mean, just to kind of, uh, follow up on that. Do, do, do you mean that the experiences you had in Shenzhen suggested that the sort of psychiatric lens or the way that um, people were uh, received in the hospitals and so on in Shenzhen w- w- didn't quite fit uh, their sort of uh, the, well, the place they were in and, and, and what they were experiencing? No, it actually precisely was that it seemed to fit, particularly for the younger generations, it seemed that they were seeking out a language from within Western psychiatric and psychological concepts. So people were interested when they knew that I was curious about mental health, for instance, and they were not looking for, you know, other, I I guess I was just caught because they, it felt like the answers would come from within these Western concepts and they were looking for them there. And at the same time, I think within the, um, within the literature, there was a sense of, entrapment by these discourses. And I didn't want to hear the people that I was meeting, the younger people, the labor migrants, in terms of only their thinking themselves into this kind of never-ending loop of, um, of a neoliberalization that they were just stepping further and further into. And, and at the same time, I didn't know what would, what would offer other grammars for thinking about these themes. So I think that it was more of a, it was almost a black hole in my own thinking and they themselves, at this point, I understand that they might be those who during the holidays go home and do engage in these other languages in their hometown, for instance. But in the setting of the hospital, those conversations didn't really come up. And so I think that that was part of my curiosity as well. I didn't know if this other, these other kind of uh, ways of thinking existed. I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, without getting kind of too immediately into into the anthropological weeds, that is, uh, I think, a really fascinating uh, approach to something which may be a widespread kind of anthropological conundrum in some ways, right? I mean, if you're approaching, uh, a, you know, a place that is manifestly not, uh, you know, a seat of um, Euro-American kind of um, you know, neoliberal thinking, uh, you're looking for something often that is different from that. And yet there are contradictions that emerge when things like, uh, in this case, psychiatric care or other sorts of um, 
things that have a certain sort of euro rootedness are willingly embraced in those places you're left in a bit of a uh, a kind of tricky place trying to find what is the you know how how do we look for something more more authentic or more rooted in a kind of local cultural context here um if you know what is being very willingly engaged in is something that you know may have a sort of imported uh, background or something right right and i don't um, think that i had a sense that there was going to be a truly authentic version of whatever it would be because i think that the the younger people i had met experienced the idea of tradition as something um somewhat rigid and persecutory and so i knew that there was a there was an issue there that wasn't just neutral and there wasn't something to be mm-hmm. easily found but i also got the sense that there might be something that's different but i didn't know exactly what it was if that makes any sense so not in the sense mm-hmm. of an un, mm-hmm. not in the sense of an uninfiltrated or un, untouched you know uh origin but in the sense of there there's some kind there's some pain that's being experienced around this concept of culture and generation and it might look differently mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Well, I think you uh, yeah, your the, the book itself is an expression of a, a, a non-conclusive kind of adherence to one or other or some search for authenticity and it's 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 absolutely not that because the way that you weave uh you know both um your sort of yeah, fieldwork experiences in a local hospital in your field site which we'll come on to in a second. Um, and the activities of uh, spirit mediums and people who consult them in that place uh, is, is exactly all about that sort of <laughs> entanglement and difficulty of extricating these things as, as you know somehow separate languages or idioms or anything like that. So um, I think you know we're already dealing in the abstract somewhat. Yeah. So maybe uh, <laughs> it would help us to delve into into the book itself. Now we know something of uh, where it came about and where your own sort of uh, curiosity took yeah. you. Um, so you did uh, pick Henan, uh, Central China, um, as a um, as a place to go and investigate some of these questions, um, and you call it in the introduction. You refer to it as uh, the China of China. Yeah. Uh, so could you explain a bit about what that term means, or through explaining what that term means, explain about uh, explain a little about why you picked that place and uh, what it was that was significant about going there. Yeah, and um, so I, I came across the term um, in a book by Mashro from the early 2000s. And so the book could be, I would be loosely translated like something like who did the Hunanese offend or something like that. And so essentially this was in the around the middle of my field work that I ran across the text. And I had already been imagining the movement from, from the urban area to the rural and back and kind of this in-between movement as a movement toward a kind of imagine a, a space of hollowing in the national imaginary. I really got the sense that people were telling me don't go there and don't go there because it's either not a good place. People would say it's a bad place in whatever layer of senses it's poor. It's um, its intentions are not the most, uh, well-origined, it's a place full of thieves and charlatans. There are all of these um, caricatures that have mapped onto this place. And at the same time, people would say there's nothing there. And this is this is something that people said in the cities as well as after I arrived, there were people there who said, "Why? what are you doing here? There's nothing here. And so it's really from this sense of nothingness. I, you know, Before I went, there was a sense, it was a space of badness and nothingness. And then once I got there, people were still telling me there's nothing. And so in the sense, in the middle of think, trying to think this hollowness in the imagination, I ran across this book and I thought the China of China was a kind of way 
um, both the, the title itself as well as the um, Ma's analysis of Henan as a kind of internal um, exteriority upon which people in China kind of um, uh, projected their own sense of um, uh, certain historical aspects of what became despicable about China symbolically. And so, I mean, his is obviously a very particular read and not everyone would agree, but I think that he he captured something about the sentiment toward the place that rang really true to me between the layers of philanthropic imaginations of poverty and the kind of sense of self-loathing that's embodied in that. And so I thought, and then at the same time, there was a question of civilizational center. So it was the heart of um, the Chinese civilization in some sense. So the older imaginary of a cosmopolitical center, and then the much newer imaginary of this collapsed um, hollow place led to a doubling that then he, for him, China is essentially um, this middle space, not quite, so Hunan is also not quite the poorest, not quite the richest, China on a global map, not quite the poorest and not quite the richest at that moment in history. And so this place of lost nowhereness and a kind of anguish about itself became the what was encapsulated in the sense of what does it mean to be China to something. And so I think for me, the sense of also trying to, how to think a place, a very particular place, like the place I call Hexian, um, without just moving back to the empiricism of then counting what is this place compared to other places, and then what is China in terms of the facts that we can find out about it, but a kind of different kind of conceptual scaling that becomes possible with this kind of twist of this term. Um, because I think that became more important to me, not that the empirical side is not important, but I think that there's something to the imaginary side that became very powerful um, in its influence on where, where I went. So it also allowed me to well, move across space um, in a way that seemed more appropriate to the place. No, well, absolutely. And I think the kind of scalar movement that you just described or the kind of way of reading uh, places and, and also a whole variety of scenes at different scales, national or local or transnational, uh, or indeed, you know, I suppose also some kind of cosmological remove, um, all interweave uh, very well in, in the book. And, and actually, you know, the relationship you trace between, you know, very grounded, empirically observed uh, occurrences and much wider scale uh, insights about this question, as you as you put it, as of of China's kind of reflections on what China is, which you know do float to the surface. I think often strikingly, uh, strikingly often, um, even in quite local contexts, um, including in encounters with, I guess, foreign anthropologists. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it's 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 something that is a, a really strong theme of the of the book as a whole. And I think what makes it somewhat uh, you know yeah genre. Uh, leaping and, and difficult to encapsulate, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, but uh, just onto Hershen then, and, and some of the things that uh, go on there. Uh, this 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 location you call Hershen. Um, you have already described, you know, your sort of interest in, in looking for some other um, idiom of or, or, or mode of um, engaging with these questions of of, of madness, as you put it, or of other uh, sort of I don't know states of mind and so on. Um, so. Who were the spirit mediums, I guess, is, is a sort of fundamental question that is immediately there. Uh, what does the term imply? How do the terms, what sort of terms exist on the ground for these people? Um, and uh, what do they do? Yeah. 
Um, actually, I want to, maybe you can loop this uh, back into the earlier part uh, a little later. I, I realized that uh, one other thing I want to mention with relation to the China of China concept was the, the rural and the peasantry were also really central in thinking about Henan as a place um, for me and, and I think for the national imaginary. So part of the, the fact of centrality was that it's the agricultural heart. It's one of the agricultural hearts and conceptual centers that then got displaced by another imaginary in which the post-reform one in which capital was reinvested in the coast. So the heart became the hollowed heart in a time of rural outmigration toward the cities um, after the death of Mao. And so I think that sense of outward movement and the peasantry losing its previous symbolic significance um, under Mao, and we can talk about this a little later as well, um, that was also central for what it meant to be the China of China to me. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to necessarily even loop that back in. I think that is uh, <laughs> excellently okay. added uh, content to, uh, to, to what we will now move on to with the spirit mediums and so on. So, um, yeah, do 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 continue with uh, yeah your the spirit mediums and, and their consultations indeed with this sort of rural, I guess, uh, peasant place. Yeah. So, um, so the media, the people who I'm translating into the broader term spirit medium um, in English are kind of bringing together several terms in the Chinese or the Hunanese. Um, and it's not quite the same as the way that people usually do it in the literature on, you know, quote unquote, popular religion in China. People tend to um, consider spirit mediums those who have a home altar where supplicants or clients go and visit and consult. And so I'm including that, you know, let's say category of people who there in Hexian would be called Kanxiangge, um, so those who see or observe incense. Um, because incense is always used um, in the sessions and um, there's a relationship between the gaze and the flame and the signals that uh, of how the incense, each incense stick burns. So that's mm. one type of person. But I'm also bringing in um, people that I met at the temple square. So there's a main temple in, in Hexian and then there are many, many other ones. Um, I spent a lot of my time on the sort of open square right outside of the temple gate where many people spent their time kind of thousands of people would go on ritual days um, in the first and 15th of the lunar month. And then those who I'm calling spirit mediums are those who hang around on even the less ritually normatively ritually significant days. And there would be, you know, groups of people from anywhere from, you know, 50, a hundred, depending on the day um, who are there with, ritual spreads with objects, um, with uh, doing spirit writing, cultivating, um, sometimes singing, sometimes reciting poetry, and all in their own ways, um, idiosyncratic ways, they would be essentially doing the work of their tutelary deities or spirits, you know, singular or multiple, depending on the person. And so this is the type of person I'm also calling spirit medium in the sense that they are channeling um, the, the work or duty of spirits that to whom they are, um, they've made, made a pact with. And so I think in the general literature, people might refer to this as something, might pull this more toward something like temple pilgrimage, but I'm calling also these people mediums because they're not only visiting temples, um, which is a much broader kind of, um, movement, 
or a much broader category of people. Um, I think these are these are people who are who experience themselves as being chosen and designated and being communicated with on a daily basis of where they should go in order to undertake a task for deity. And so to open a home altar and take in supplicants is just one particular task that might be undertaken. And there might be other, mm. other forms of tasks, such as showing up on a part at a particular temple with particular, uh, particular ritual implements and burning particular amounts of paper money or burning particular amounts of incense um, in the, in the name of something. And this something is often secret, you know, it's between the person and their, their tutelary spirit. So it's not really to be known or to be asked. So I couldn't always ask what it was for, but people would say it's from above, which just meant, uh, so it just meant from, from the heavens essentially. And so the reason that I bring the two sides together this kind of more public presence of um, this relationship with the invisible world and the more kind of classic sense of, um, you know, the supplicant and the, the medium at their, at their ritual table is that I feel like they stage different sides of the cosmology today. And so it's, it's not only in the consultation um, that the question of history and spirits is speaking, it's that there's a kind of public open staging of what it is, that's off and at a disjuncture in historical and cosmic time, something is amiss and unaligned. And so people are present at the temple square to realign this particular moment. And then those in the consultation kind of table are dealing with individuated issues that also have something to do with these times. Um, so this is through forms of haunting or questions of, you know, it could be, and it could be very Ordin, quote unquote ordinary things, marriage, work, money, etc. It's not that it's all, always about something um, cosmic in the supplicants terms, but what frames all of the issues and the hauntings that are uh, arriving at the present is something that becomes central to the book, which is that in the contemporary cosmology um, there, the reason that there are these hauntings and spirits today is because of the death of Mao. And so in their cosmology, the the lifespan and reign of Mao actually marked one of a kind of positive, a morally positive disappearance of spirits. So the spirits vanished, but not in the sense of religious persecution. The spirits vanished because Mao was a more powerful spirit who then protected China from total foreign imperial um, over, overtake and destruction. And so there was a sense that spirits that were becoming that were corrupt, becoming corrupt or dark were essentially sent out by the presence, the earthly presence of Mao. And Mao himself was sent down, in fact, from the heavens, and he himself did not know this. So there was a question of an arrival of sovereignty and a, a sovereign banishing of spirits that shouldn't be there at the time. And so Mao's death was seen as a, a risky moment in which sovereignty, a divine sovereignty was withdrawn and the spirits who were corrupt, um, fake, there was a the language of fake God. So the spirits that were corrupted and fake returned to haunt the contemporary moment. And so basically for the mediums, the present is, is filled with the sense of haunting uh, as a result of the end of the, the Maoist era. 
Right. Hence the need, I suppose, for all of these various uh, personae, you know, as mediums, as people mediating between um, these various, these different realms and, and uh, as a way of, um, yeah, as, as you put it, to sort of fix things that are out of joint uh, for a wider, a wider group of people visiting um, the square and, and the temple and, and, and these individual people too. Right. Um, I just wonder though, could you say a little more, I mean, for, I think it's including people uh, such as uh, me who are not uh, sort of specialists or in, or kind of particularly knowledgeable about um, the broader uh, uh, sort of traditional or indeed contemporary religious scene in China at large. Um, could you say a bit more about this sort of whole cosmological setup, basically the, the kind of idea of the spirit world and the human world and um, how that sort of how what you encountered and, and your sense of what it was these people were mediating between related to, I guess, some more classic descriptions of uh, how these kind of uh, realms interact in um, more, I, I suppose, um, yeah, historical or, or, or sort of yeah, traditional uh, Chinese folk religion. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, well, I think all of all of it, this has to be prefaced by um, by the kind of the history and many scholars have done wonderful uh, work on this. Um, Rebecca Nedostup, who's done work on uh, superstitious regimes on how anti-superstition campaigns across nationalists and Maoist eras essentially transformed um, the entire religious landscape in China. And, um, and so, and many others. And so basically whatever counts as Chinese religion today or whatever becomes called Chinese religion is already influenced by, you know, over a century, well, I suppose centuries of missionary encounter with the West, etc. So mm. Chinese religion as a concept and category, as many who you know also work beyond China are probably familiar with who work on religion, um, has been channeled through Western lenses of what qualifies as religion, what should be counted, mm. what should be named a religion, quote unquote. And so missionaries had gone uh, in search of what is the or what are the Chinese religions. And without trying to summarize that history, I think that um, what had happened across the different moments and the different moments of governance was that some major strands were selected out of this missionary imperial, you know, um, history in which Christianity, Catholicism, um, Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, um, Taoism were picked out as official religions. And this was a very long and complicated process. Um, but what got, in a sense, left over was this category, almost a, you know, a, a loose category that became, came to be called popular religion in the literature, uh, that which didn't quite belong in any formalized, you know, space, but also that which was, um, diffuse and kind of everyday in its practices. So there's, there's different ways in which this concept of the popular quote unquote is, is used. And I think for, for in my work, I'm taking that up as a kind of upside down role. So a medium becomes something of a quote unquote popular religion because it has been mediums as a figure have been written out of um, officialdom when it comes to recognized religions mm-hmm. and it has to do with the presence of the spirit world in general. So um, on the side of, for instance, on the side of healing, Chinese medicine has also 
clean up some of the aspect. The formally recognized version of Chinese medicine has written out some spirited parts as well. So these through these kind of um, historical moves to clear out the spirited aspects, then what remains is this kind of, are these regional practices of mediumship that then don't get allowed in the formal temples. And so, yeah, you can stop me if I'm getting too long in my uh, um, description, but one of the mm, very old classic, but also, you know, still strong divisions is just that of yin and yang. And it wasn't really until I spoke to some friends who are conversant with the China literature, but don't work in China, that I realized in oftentimes people don't mention that it's not just for instance, a Chinese medical or symbolic um, concept, the yin and yang, is that the yin world is actually considered the world not only of coldness, darkness, um, and and certain medicinal properties, but it's also the world of the invisible and the world of ghosts, and in a sense, the world of Mm -hmm. gods as well. And so, and the the yang or yang world is considered the world of the living, the visible, and the human. And so in that sense, there is this very broad, divide between the living invisible and the non non-living in the usual sense and the invisible and people are always mm. traversing this kind of terrain of um what i end up calling a cosmic doubling so any any entity any words any objects can potentially have meaning and force in these realms in the kind of human what we might call secular realm as well as the cosmic or spectral or invisible realm and Many people beyond people who consider themselves mediators of uh, spirits talk about the world in that way as well. But there is a lot of contention after um, decades of these anti-superstition campaigns. There's a lot of contention around whether or not these worlds are real, whether or not they should be engaged. Um, There's a lot of tension within families, across generations, across gender. So... Mm. That's the, I'm not sure if that quite answers what you were asking, but this no, is no. part of the landscape. Yeah, it absolutely does. Because it, what it draws out is that sort of uh, tension, I guess, yeah, between some of the modernizing, formalizing dynamics that have characterized some of the grander historical epochs that I think are part of your uh, sort of understanding or part of your analytical frame in some ways of, for approaching these things, but also some of those tensions on the ground, as you say, between uh, generations or between uh, kind of more demotic practices uh, and ways in which these things are framed uh, were compared to uh, more formalistic I guess state categorizing uh, regimes and so on so I think I think that's all that's all super useful um I guess since uh, you've also just you know brought us back to that question of the hidden and the dark uh, secret kind of world um I think one practical question which uh, you know may may have benefited from being earlier than this now quite middle point of, uh, of the conversation but I guess uh, just on the front uh, of how you actually did this work you said already that there was some things that you obviously were not able to fully understand or, or kind of ask directly about um, just because there were things that could not be disclosed to yeah. you but even on the level of gaining trust and being among people uh, who are kind of dealing in this in this uh, at this sort of juncture mediating between these realms how <laughs> practically speaking did you get in with these people to put it? Lovely? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, I suppose it took time. That's, that's the most 
maybe one of the more important dimensions and um, also a bit language because I think I had underestimated the gap between standard Mandarin and Hunanese dialect. And so it took me a while to kind of get a sense of, you know, both what people were talking about and as well as speak in a way that wasn't so, um, it, it marks one immediately um, by speaking standard Mandarin there. People don't use it mm. um, locally. And so, so one's immediately perceived as, you know, someone who's there for purposes of gain. Um, and so I think that it, it took, you know, I, I started, I was, um, living with the family. And then I asked them what, what kinds of practices are common. And I ended up meeting friends, neighbors, um, and started going with people to mediums, um, when they were, you know, in, in need of a visit. And I also spent a lot of time just asking around in general, you know, who are some well-known mediums, um, what mediums were in the region. And I would show up Mm -hmm. and, you know, try to see if they were interested in speaking. Some were more, some were less. And I also just spent a lot of time at the temple and the temple square, just, I suppose, lingering in a sense. And I write a bit about lingering in the book, but the, the act of lingering itself, I think, both in my initial confusion of how to really understand um, what was going on and understand what people were trying to, to get at. And also, you know, after a while, I realized that was also the act, that was also their act, was an act of lingering. Um, and I ended up thinking in the book through um, Berlant's idea of animated suspension, so that there was a kind of suspension of regular temporality there, and people would go and spend their whole days, which is also why people would fall out of the regular economy of things, you know, not necessarily go to work or wage labor and just spend day and night at the temple. And so there was kind of pausing of time in order to critique time in a particular way by mediating these, how I'm thinking about um, mediating these cosmic histories. And so essentially at the practical level, I ended up just going day after day because I also, um, I just found it really, it, it drew me in what people were speaking about, singing about what they were staging in a sense. And interestingly, as a counterpoint, I think, you know, in a lot of day-to-day life outside of the temple, there was a lot of talk of money and pragmatics and, and labor and work and more money. And I think the temple square was one of the spaces in which this kind of draw toward wealth and this kind of fracturing of families um, in the middle of rural outmigration and this kind of break between generations and this impossibility between generations was really being spoken about and articulated through various genres. There was, I didn't write that much, but about the Hananese um, opera genre. So there was these, there were songs as well as these kind of half poetry, half, um, half spoken instances. So essentially I spent, that's how I spent my days. And I think as when I was there for long enough, people also got the sense that I was there for something and something they felt like was beyond academic research. And I didn't, you know, Mm. I would tell people I'm here as a researcher and they would say, well, everyone winds up here for reasons they don't know. And so Mm. I think that was part of the engagement as well. Yeah. There are lots of uh, cases of kind of, uh, you relating exchanges, which indicate that people see you as as you know, uh, I think as incorporated and uh, and as 
adopted as one can hope to be, uh, you know, on the, on, as, as someone, uh, as you said, they're present for research purposes. You know, I think how people's sort of uh, framing of what they see you to be doing and what how they see your research in relation to their own concerns, um, it, it's something that comes out very nicely as a self-reflexive uh, element of the book too. So um, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting to hear. Um, and actually leads us on quite well, I think, to uh, what I wanted to ask next. Um, we've already touched on some of the key concerns of uh, chapter one, which um, frame more of this question of rurality and, and, and the peasantry, I suppose, in Chinese history. Um, and, and I guess that, that sort of as a basis for looking at uh, He Xian and Henan uh, in particular. Um, so I thought we might move on to um, the second chapter, which uh, actually focuses precisely on this uh, Fuxi Temple Square, um, Fuxi Temple being the name of that main temple that you've already alluded to, uh, where you spent so much time lingering. Um, and from that scene, I guess you draw out some inferences about the place of Mao in particular. And he's come up, but he's also in the title of the book, so he probably deserves a bit more attention than we've given him. Um, so I wonder kind of what you could say more about the spirit medium practices uh, that center on Mao, uh, how sort of Mao's place in actual um, yeah, mediumship between human and spirit realms occurs these days, how he sort of hovers over things. Um, and uh, more broadly, what that tells us about some of these more sort of broader historical or um, uh, his, yeah, historicity and temporality-based themes that you've also touched on, but I, I wondered if you could flesh out a bit more in terms of understanding the post-Mao era. There's a lot there, I know, but take, take yeah, your pick. Definitely. <laughs> um, well, to briefly return to the, the peasantry theme, so I, you know, in the first chapter, I had kind of, there was an arc from the rise of the peasantry in literary and political figurations in kind of the early 20th century. And so the sense that in order to be a modern nation, one has to deal with its others, women, peasants, etc. And so it, they came into um, writing and into a kind of question of representation. And the Maoist moment did something slightly different, which brought out this revolutionary potential. And in the figure of the peasantry. And so at the, you know, um, again, without going into too much detail, at the moment, the Soviet vision of uh, revolution was very urban centered. It was a sense of a proletarian revolution from the factories. And I think Mao and those, his mentor and those around him, there was a certain impasse because China at the time was so, full, so deeply in proportion um, agrarian. And so in some of um, the early communist writings in China's something took place between the 20s and 30s that allowed the peasantry to actually become the figure of the heart of Chinese revolution and therefore also a world revolution um, of a kind of suffering of the world congealed on Chinese peasant bodies so that there was a kind of class warfare that would be possible based on the suffering of the peasantry. And I think that this vision, you know, as problematic as it is and as much as people debate about how it was actually carried out, I think this image really um, held steady for the people that I met in Hexian. And so it was still very fresh in the mind that one could embody the political subjectivity of a heroic peasant revolutionary and that capacity for imagining oneself in that world historical time that launched into the future really shifted, I think, after the post-reform moment in which the rural regions became, quote unquote, backwards once again. 
and it just becomes a sinkhole of time that moves in a different direction. And so I think it's in partly, and not only, but partly in this context that um, most people I met in Hushin were relatively supportive of Mao and they had been, at least according um, to their, their accounts, very supportive of Mao during his lifetime. And they remain loyal in their accounts of Mao and in their sense of a region that was, was loyal to Mao. And so I think it, it's not um, out of nowhere that this sense, uh, the sense of the mediums of the cosmic implosion that occurred after Mao's death and disappearance was very much aligned with the, with the hearts and spirits of the people who are all around. Um, and there was a sense that things were, you know, I would ask, well, weren't things difficult there? Because it's a region also known for the very intense Great Leap famines in the late 1950s. And people would say, yes, but famine was worse prior to Mao. You know, we at least with Mao, at least we had food to eat. And, you know, there some suffering was necessary, but things got better and better. So, you know, that was the sense that I got there, that Mao's death almost felt as if it was yesterday. And in the accounts of daily life now, whatever now means, um, was always paired with the yesterday of Mao's passing, even though it had already been, you know, 40 plus years. And so I think it was in this, um, yeah, it it was in this setting that there was a sense that Mao was a a kind of withdrawn sovereign. And so for the mediums, his presence was one that actually still gazed at at the present. And so he was mourning in a sense, he could still see everything that was going on beneath, but he didn't have the power to return in, embodied form anymore. And so essentially um, at the temple square, one would hear people recite the poetry of Mao by heart. People would sing revolutionary songs from the Maoist era, um, sometimes alone, sometimes together. Um, People would, uh, there were, you know, people would wear people's liberation army or red guard uniforms in part of their rituals. Uh, Maoist icons were, sorry, icons of Mao were, place next to Buddhists or Taoists or regional um, icons of different deities. And so he was seen as part of the scene of the other, the invisible world and not external to it and not against it either. And so people would often say that Mao was sent from the Buddhist family not everyone, this wasn't the exact account of everyone, but I think it was common um, among the people at the Temple Square that Mao, one of the unspoken, the public secrets, and pe- it was often coded. So the question of Mao, and emperorship, the color yellow. And so there were signals seen in objects and colors. And so the, the s- public secret account was essentially that Mao was sent from the heavens by the Buddhist family and possibly um, by the Maitreya Buddha. And some would say he was Maitreya himself. And so there was a sense that he was both gone and pointing to the future, and that everything that was staged around and that was happening pointed, somehow gestured back toward him and his absent presence. Um, Mm. And yeah, so, so some of this was material in the sense of pins and icons and uniforms and buttons and songs. And some of this was just the way that the spirit world seemed uh, to revolve. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, your allusion to those kind of 
that paraphernalia, if you like, of, of that era kind of gives a sense of the texture of how that time is looked back on, how it's experienced, um, you know, albeit because of, um, I guess, a lot of material uh, austerity in, in the country at large. You know, it's somewhere where a certain uh, aesthetic, a certain color palette mm-hmm. and so on um, is very vivid and, and lives on in a way which I think is, you know, it's more compelling to suggest a connection between all of those links uh, as well as the musical forms, the relatively standardized repertoire of red songs and so on that you also mentioned there. It's easier to make that connection between that and the figure of Mao as a as a historical uh, persona, uh, you know, I think, than, than it might be, uh, you know, in, in, in other uh, broader contexts um, and also gives, yeah, this sort of fascinating cosmological account, if you like, or cosmological understanding of uh, certainly the post-Mao condition uh, and, and perhaps also this sort of post-socialist term which is so debated in its relevance to China um, but yeah moving forward then uh, you kind of delve into some of the specific activities of some of the mediums and and their uh, activities in consultation with uh, the ordinary residents of Hersien including dream interpretation and interactions with with ghosts and so on uh, which themselves also kind of relate to key events of uh, that Mao period during the Cultural Revolution, during the famine, which you've also mentioned too. Um, but since you know we don't have uh, an eternity of time yeah. to talk about all of these things, I thought I'd move us on, sort of coming full circle back to some of your interest in the uh, in the psychiatric ward or in the kind of um, more medicalized or hospital-based uh, life of some of these ideas, some of these concepts. So it's the latter two chapters that kind of delve into some of these questions. Um, so could you sort of say something more about you know, as you sort of under, came to understand these themes that we've talked about so far in relation to your initial motivation, your initial interest there in the question of, uh, of psychiatric care and, and uh, you know, the, the, the kind of starting point that you had, um, how do these two registers or these two uh, spaces or modes interact with one another? And how do these kinds of uh, themes of generational or epochal change or rural emptying manifest themselves uh, in the psychiatric ward specifically. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that space in. And so, in in that particular place, the the hospital and the temple were were sitting right across from each other. And so, there was a sense that the temple was a space of madness. It's it's was locally known as a place where somewhat mad people go, and that usually referred to you know the people who I'm calling the mediums. And at the same time, there was a kind of mutual reference. So um, I write about a large TV screen that had uh, that circulated different advertisements. And one of the advertisements was for the psychiatric ward across the street. And so there was a, mm. there was a kind of um, locally known sense that there was a crossing between something about the temple square encapsulated a question of madness that was also being raised at the psychiatric ward or, or the psychiatric ward was a site where one would deal with um, the question that were at the temple square. So on the one hand, some people, you know, quite literally circulated between the two. I write about the case of a medium who was hospitalized for um, a while. And at the same time, it's by no means were all people who experience a possession or consider themselves mediums hospitalized. Yet in many of the accounts, the life accounts of the mediums, they do say that the moment of appointment and being chosen by one's uh, tutelary deity uh, there is a moment of illness or a series of moments of illness that point to an ordeal that 
culminate in madness. And it's after illness and madness that one become one makes a pact to become medium and the illness subsides. And so there is a link between the language of madness and mediumship. And then in the hospital itself, I think the the mediumship and possession and um, consultation practices, that those kinds of languages drop into whispers in a sense. People know that the psychiatric, the psychiatrists don't necessarily condone those practices, but at the same time, the psychiatrists live in the same world and are very well aware of these practices. Um, And then patients who are there at the ward who I spoke to, many of them, but not all, would describe their experiences in terms of possession or seeing ghosts or bumping into a ghost. That, That was one of the common phrases was colliding into a ghost. Um, but also not everyone. And so the chapter that I focus on the um, on different, I, on a sort of constellation of cases at the hospital is where I actually use the hospital space to think about generationality and this form of impasse, but in a slightly different way than kind of a, alongside the cosmology and the sense that, um, that there was an impossibility of care between the generations in the middle of um out migration movements so that families were often dispersed in space. And also, even if families wanted to care for one another, whatever that would mean, their registers of care became illegible sometimes to one another. So that I write, for instance, about the case of a um, young girl who dropped out of high school and was trying to get find her way back into school and dreamt of going to college in the big city. And she kept speaking about her, quote unquote, textbook peasant father who she just couldn't stand because she felt like he couldn't give him the quote love that she needed, the affection, the paternal love. And at the same time, I knew from speaking to people that were somewhat more of the, you know, occupational and and social class as her father and that generation, this kind of bourgeois language of love and care and affection was not of their time and not of their class. And so there was a gap between what she desired, which came in the language of, like, this is looping back to the beginning of the, the young people I met in Shenzhen. She, she said, I would love to have a psychological consultation with a Western-style psychologist, but that doesn't exist here. I would have to go to Beijing or Shanghai. And, and at the same time, someone like her father would not be able to, the way that he would address her um, his care for her would be precisely through money. And so he was someone who worked in the field as well as in wage labor. And so she, something that struck me that she kept going back to was a refrain. When he talks, all he talks about is money. And so I think that for me in the hospital, what I encountered was these kind of breaks and impossibilities between the symptom of one of the members of the family but what it spoke to were these layered generational issues that were resonating as well at the temple square, just in a different register. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really kind of novel, a fascinating lens on something which I suppose is quite widely discussed or, or, you know, people are more broadly aware of it. The idea of a generation gap, you know, the idea that the kind of incredible uh, socioeconomic changes that have happened in China created these quite uh, deep chasms between people of different generations that isn't necessarily something that's uh, right. used to, to many people but as a but I, I think the way you kind of are able to frame that 
by looking at it, you know, looking at differences in expectation, difference, uh, differences in uh, yeah, languages and, and practices of care, uh, specifically through, I guess, a sense that is shared by different generations that things are out of wax, yeah. things are out of joint, you know, that both, so you actually manage to level things quite well, or at least like give everyone a sort of, I think, a, a, you know, a voice um, through considering how these things are mediated through, uh, yeah, engagement with various, um, uh, well, other realms uh, in the case of spirit mediums or the, or the language of psychiatric care and so on. It's a, it's a really um, compelling new lens on lots of those uh, issues, which are so important and kind of familiar, I guess, to many people who've spent, uh, spent time working on China. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, we're kind of coming towards, kind of coming towards our conclusion. Yeah. So I guess um, I thought I'd sort of finish up by asking you maybe to return a bit to, you know, place like Hersien, this kind of uh, location and and how it helps us to sort of reappraise some of these uh, categories that, that you were sort of approaching at the beginning. Um, and I mean, also because, you know, I think my personal sort of interest in the gender is quite, uh, quite sort of socialism mm-hmm. focused or quite interested in the figure of Mao and the question of these sorts of visions uh, is, you know, would you say that the kind of broader, you know, cosmological and psychiatric activities you encountered in this place tell you something new about uh, visions of the future of, of utopia of any sense that there can be some new order coming a, a return of a strong sovereign like Mao or whether there's any prospect for actually kind of settling some of these things uh, that's a very broad and <laughs> open-ended and possibly impossible question but uh, since we've you know talked about views of the past and so on I just wondered if you had any sense of of, of how that might look how, how does the future yeah. look i don't i mean i you know um i i don't know how the future would look in a concrete sense and i think that that was also one of the themes for the mediums is that there's there's this sense of um there's a sense of prophecy and i was just um i was just reading blanchot on prophetic speech and the question of how prophetic speech actually what it does isn't simply to tell one what's coming next, but what it does is actually um, implode and take away the present as it's usually given. And so I think that there's a sense in which mediumship takes away so many, in in the way that I experienced or encountered it at least, it took away so many givens that people seem to assume, which is that socialism is something that's far past, Mao is something that's far past and outmoded. and that, or even the idea that the Maoist state um, is necessarily secular, which is which is so much assumed, and Maoist policies were necessarily that, that there's only a secular anti-religious reading of such obviously anti-religious campaigns. If even that can be turned upside down through the cosmology, mm-hmm. then not much is given um, that can't be transformed even from its own languages. And so if even temple destruction campaigns can be read as divine intervention in a particular moment <laughs> in which China was about yeah. to um, cave to the demonic spirits of the West, which was the reading of that, those campaigns, then I think it opens up time in a completely different way, which is not to say what comes next in, in, a, in a completely calculable way, but what, what can we assume about the past and the present? Uh, and the present, which then entirely transforms what could come in the future, I think, to me. Mm. 
Mm. Well, and it, and it, I think, gives a, a new centeredness to these people who live in a place which, as you sort of, as you put it in the codity of the whole book, that are people who are seen as remaining behind, as, as in some ways, I guess, part of a left behind China, as you uh, described at the start there, somewhere that is not necessarily the focal point anymore of uh, the big story of China. And so uh, to, to kind of uh, center some of um, people in this place's efforts and, and, and projects to uh, reappropriate, or maybe that's too strong, but at least, you know, have a strong interpretive framework through which they are understanding uh, their present and indeed their future, I think is a, also makes this entire thing a very, a very valuable exercise, uh, quite apart from its, you know, fascinations in, in all sorts of areas. Um, so thank you very much, Emily, for, for speaking to us about that uh, today. Um, before we let you go, though, uh, perhaps I could ask what uh, has come next, uh, you know, on the on the docket for uh, what, what's followed on from this book and what are you up to at present? Um, yeah, uh, so, I, so I guess since since that project, I've been kind of hopping around on a couple of collaborative projects. Um, I was part of a collaboration at Stanford that was led by Tanya Lerman that we've come to call the Mind and Spirit Project. So that brought me toward the um, the theme of charismatic Christianity in China. And so in that project, we're thinking about the religious experience um, and sensorial embodied experience across different contexts and in different uh, national contexts. Uh, so recently I've been on a project at the University of Amsterdam led by Esther Pearden that's called Imagining the Global, um, sorry, Imagining the Rural in a Globalizing World, where we're rethinking um, the tendency to center the city as the sort of core of globalization when in fact the quote unquote rural is the is the sort of um belly and supply of whether it be labor resource extraction etc of a transnational globalized world so that turning away from the city as the emblem of the global and the question of what has been changing in village landscapes and how did village landscapes um, themselves actually speak to the the global scale and i think that that very much came out of this project as well for which for me hexian is not a local place it's a place that speaks to world history just as beijing or shanghai um so yeah so that's what i've been up to since the book fantastic and um, will we see is there a book planned or a, a kind of some, uh, some some pieces planned from from that project yeah there are some there are some uh, writings and articles out i'm not sure how i would think about the next book quite yet but um but that's those are the themes that I've been thinking about and patching together. Brilliant. Well, uh, no rush, obviously. I mean, it's not, not, but not to put <laughs> the pressure on. <laughs> it's, only, it's only last year, so you know. I think you've got a decade at least to uh, to, to come up with another one based on the speed at which some people move. Um, so <laughs> great. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I really wanted to yeah express how grateful I am for uh, you having talked to us today. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, many thanks to you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon.